Hello, and welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory. On the rocks! With Katie. And Allie. Usually we would be hanging out, just the two of us, with a couple of cocktails, talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about women in history. We have a very special guest here with us today, Katherine Howell. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. We're so excited to have you. Catherine is a New York Times best-selling and award-winning historian and novelist. She is the co-author with Anderson Cooper of the number one New York Times best-selling Vanderbilt, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty. And she descended from three people who were tried for witchcraft in the Salem witch trials. So we could talk to her for a billion years about a lot of things, but she's here today to talk about her latest book, A True Account, Hannah Missouri Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself. So Catherine, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I started writing while I was in graduate school, doing a doctorate in American and New England studies. And uh, I was procrastinating. I was procrastinating working on my dissertation. And instead of writing a dissertation, I wrote my first novel, which is called The Physic Book of Deliverance Dane, and which came out in 2009. And that story came about because I was wondering, what if one of the Salem witches were the real thing, but not the way that we commonly see witches represented in fiction? What if she was real the way the colonists actually believed witches to be? And so that kind of launched me off into my new career. So I mostly write historical fiction. I'm an Americanist, so I write American historical fiction. I'm particularly interested in the kinds of stories of people who wouldn't otherwise leave much of a record of themselves in the archive. And um, and I've done two collaborations with Anderson now. One was Vanderbilt, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty. And then this last September, we published Aster, The Rise and Fall of an American Fortune. And in each case, those books are kind of an unconventional historical biography of these two different families that also puts those families in kind of a larger context of what's going on in the world at that time. So I'm interested in stories that are kind of, you know, the kinds of stories that would be overlooked otherwise. Mm. Perfect. Well, we're so excited to talk about your latest book, uh, but first we have to introduce the cocktail we made for it. I um, love so the cocktail. <laughs> well, this one's actually pretty good. I'm proud of this one. <laughs> um, so this is, we boiled it down to a true account. Uh, mm -hmm. And it is spiced rum, passion fruit, simple syrup, juice from a mandarin orange, and you top the whole thing off with ginger beer. Oh my. <laughs> Glamorous. Glamorous. Mm. Delicious and just piratey enough. <laughs> I, f I confess, last night I had a Mount Gay Madras, and uh, I'm feeling it a little today. Yeah. <laughs> so, before we dive into your book, can we set the scene for our listeners? This is a dual narrative. What two time periods are we in in this story? So A True Account opens in Boston in 1726 in the summer. And the main character, Hannah Missouri, is a, in her late teens. We never exactly find out how old she is. And she has been bound out to service her entire life in a tavern called Ship Tavern, which was a real place in Boston at this time and had already been standing for almost 100 years. And she witnesses the hanging of pirate William Fly. And that was a real thing that happened in Boston in June of 17 or in July, rather, of 1726. And in the course of witnessing William Fly's execution, Hannah then gets caught up in some intrigue 
And then she has to disguise herself and flee Boston uh, to save her life. And she ships out pretending to be a cabin boy on what she thinks is a fruit packet bound for the Azores. But quickly she discovers that she has actually delivered herself into the hands of some of William Fly's Confederates. And then about 40 pages in, we've been reading Hannah's adventure, which is in first person this entire time. But then about 40 pages in, we discover that actually we've been reading over someone's shoulder this entire time. And the, the person whose shoulder we're reading over is Marion Beresford. She's a professor at Radcliffe in 1929. And she is reading a text that her undergraduate has found, which is called A True Account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself, which is why there's such a long title for this book, because it's based on titles from the 18th century, like actual 18th century books usually had these very long winded kinds of titles. And so a true account is actually the, the book within the book. Mm-hmm. And um, Marion and her undergraduate, whose name is Kay, have to discover whether or not Hannah's account is true. And of course, because it's a pirate story, there is a treasure hunt kind of in the, in the center of it. You have to have some pirate tropes in a pirate story. So there's a parrot, there's a treasure hunt. Um, but it also gives me a chance to think, you know, as someone who does a lot of historical fiction, to think a lot about the nature of truth and the relationship between history and myth, which in something like pirates is um, always a question at the forefront. Mm-hmm. So as you said, the first person we meet is Hannah Missouri. She is living near the end of the golden age of piracy in Boston. What is she like as a person and why does she choose to kind of strike out on her own? Well, Hannah is living in a a time period that I find pretty interesting to think about. So she is kind of constituted in this just post-Puritan moment. So she was born after the Salem Witch Trials had already happened. Mm -hmm. And so she is still kind of exposed to a lot of Puritan rhetoric, and she uses a lot of Puritan rhetoric herself. Um, She's She's illiterate, and yet she's had to go to church every single Sunday for hours and hours and hours at a time. And in fact, the guy who presided over William Fly's pirate trial was the same guy, Cotton Mather, who presided over the Salem Witch Trials a generation before. But of necessity, Hannah has no power, and she has almost nothing of her own. So she she finds it sort of In the course of having no power, she discovers that she has had to develop a kind of moral flexibility in order to make herself safe and also to give herself some pleasure and to give herself a modicum of control over her life. Mm. So Hannah's kind of spunky. She's she's got she has some attitude. She, you know, she likes to vex her mistress and she has friends and she likes she's lazy. She likes to shirk her work. She she is, you know, an expert at the labor slowdown form of resistance. She, uh, you know, facilitates these two boys stealing from her mistress, even though she knows that they're going to run out without paying their bill. So Hannah is is a little bit, I don't want to say problematic, but she's, uh, you know, she's a little thorny, which I like about. And then the other character that you referenced earlier is Marion, and she's a professor who's piecing Hannah's story together. What is she like and how does reading about Hannah change her? Mariana obviously is from a very different background. She's actually from a really privileged background, which we get little tidbits of here and there, that she grew up in this pretty cosseted environment in Manhattan in the 19-teens. But Marion is kind of struggling with the strictures in her own life as well, partly because um, Marion is gay. And she is gay and a, and a little bit gender nonconforming. 
And so, but that she's gay at a time when gendered performance was very rigidly defined within the law. So it could be dangerous for Marion to not appear feminine, for example. Um, it could get her in, in trouble, you know, physically and also legally and also professionally. And so one of the things that we, when we first meet Marion, she kind of seems to be very buttoned up and living a very controlled lifestyle or, or because we, we come to understand exactly what's at stake for her. And as she starts reading more and more about Hannah, I think she starts to kind of see some possibilities for herself in Hannah's character. And so she starts, not that she starts to love Hannah exactly, but she definitely starts to like imagine what it would be like to be more bold. And she takes some, she takes some of Hannah into herself in that way. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because there is this interesting juxtaposition against someone who is dressing gender non-conforming to survive in the situation right. that they're in and yeah. someone who can't dress gender non-conforming to protect themselves from the situation that they're in. Exactly. So- and, and one of the things that's happening in both of the timelines is, um, you know, I spend some time thinking about all the ways that we have to perform in order to make ourselves safe. Mm-hmm. And in both timelines, the characters speak explicitly about appearing to be what someone expects them to expects them to be. And I think that that's something that all of us have had to confront at one time or another to sort of try to make yourself conform to what someone else's expectations of you are in order to get something that you want or something that you need or to ensure some kind of safety or freedom for yourself. And um, so I thought it would be interesting to explore that in these two very different times, which I hate that are very different from the time that we're living in now. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. no, absolutely. And it's so speaking of danger, I mean, how dangerous is it for someone like Hannah to be on a pirate ship? What kinds of things are they doing? <laughs> well, it's funny, because a couple of the reviews of this book have listed little trigger warnings for the violence, which actually took me a little bit by surprise, because normally, I am a big wimp. I'm like the biggest chicken in the world. And my, my fiction almost always is like kind of PG 13. You know, there's not a lot of language. There's usually not really any violence to speak of, or if there is, it's kind of shocking and it's at the end, you know, but as someone pointed it out, I was like, oh, is there that much violence in this book? And then I started thinking, okay, well, start with the hanging, okay, and then and then there's this thing that happens, and then this this thing happened, okay, and then, and then that happens, and then that, like, and once I started telling it all up in my head, I realized, actually, yeah, this is an extraordinarily violent book compared to anything else that I've written, but what's strange about that is that 99.9% of the violence that's in this story was not something I made up. It came out of the historical record. Mm -hmm. And so it speaks to the fact that living in this maritime world and then living in an extra legal maritime world um, was very dangerous. It was a very dangerous place to be. There's a threat of terror kind of at every turn. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, there were boys on pirate ships. In fact, one of the most famous pirate ship wrecks, um, one of the only ones that's actually been excavated and found is the Wida, or Wida, which wrecked off of the coast of Cape Cod. And a few years ago, um, that, that ship had been captained by a guy named Black Sam Bellamy, which is a great pirate name. Well, apparently Black Sam had uh, attacked a, a merchant ship and a little boy who was on board wanted to go with the pirates. And so he did. And some years ago, the Boston Globe reported that at the wreck of the widow, they had found 
a leather boy's shoe that still contained a silk stocking and a tibia. Ooh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So there, so there were adolescent people who mm-hmm. were caught up in this kind of dangerous maritime world. And so the question is, you know, is Hannah's, is Hannah in danger because of her youth? Is she in danger because everyone in this world is in danger? Is she in danger because of her gender? Any and all of these things could be true given the different contexts. And now we're in the end of kind of the golden age of piracy. How does that impact Hannah's experience and how are things different near the end of it? I think that the golden age of piracy stands out because so many of the pirates that we have like come to know through popular culture were active during this time period. But one thing that I think is interesting uh, that I learned when I was researching for a true account was that there was a whole generation early in the golden age of piracy, like in the 1680s, 1670s, whose exploits were covered in what was then popular media. So in broadsides or sometimes in books and stories and things like that. And so there was a a subsequent generation of golden age pirates who were active in like the 17 teens who had heard all of these stories when they were growing up and kind of modeled themselves in some regard after the stories that they had already heard. So there's this really, to my mind, interesting um, relationship between fact and myth when it comes with pirates. Like pirates are instantly mythologized, even sometimes while they're still alive, Mm. um, which I find kind of fascinating. Yeah. And thinking about that, was there anything that you found during your research, like about pirate life that surprised you? And were there other things that you kind of wish were true, but weren't? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I found exactly one instance of plank walking in primary sources when I was when I was doing the research for this. In fact, the research that went into a true account is going to come out uh, in in an edited volume from Penguin Classics in April called The Penguin Book of Pirates. And so the one plank walking that I found is going to be in The Penguin Book of Pirates. Um, I think I was struck by a few things, like not least of which is there were many different stages of active piracy, some of which align with our image of what piracy is like, our sort of romantic image of like a charismatic leader with a leading a ship of, uh, of brigands who have all run away from some other kind of responsibility. It did happen to some extent uh, during the Golden Age, but there are other models too. Um, there are some instances like the Barbary pirates, the, the Barbary Coast pirates in the early 19th century. They were sort of a little bit different. They're more like the seagoing navy of some warlords that were based on land. So they were kind of like extra legal, but they weren't renegades. They were like working for somebody else. Um, that's true for the South China Sea pirates that were active around that same time as well. Um, And in another instance, one thing that was really surprising to me was to think about how piracy has, is romanticized because it represents radical freedom. It represents this, like, like Hannah does in the story, she kind of asserts her right to make her own choices. And to some extent, that is what was happening in golden age piracy. But their whole trade was absolutely predicated on the vast amounts of wealth moving around the Atlantic world that were directly related to the transatlantic slave trade, which is the most like extreme form of unfreedom. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the reasons that we tend to be romantic about pirates is because we don't actually know anything about them. Mm. And without giving too much away, can you tell us a little bit about the mystery that's at the center of your story? 
Well, the, there there is a treasure hunt at the center of the story, but the the major mystery is whether or not a true account, Hannah Masseri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself, is actually true. Whether or not it is a legitimate primary source or whether it was written by somebody else a little bit later. And that kind of open question is itself based on some historical resource, research. So not too long ago, I was in a museum and I found a piece, I happened upon a piece of scrimshaw which is um, illustrated whale tea. And this one had a picture of a woman and it said, uh, Fanny Campbell, female pirate captain. And I was like, who's that? I've never even heard of this female pirate captain. What's the story here? And the museum label like identified that that's who that was. So then I did some research into it. Fanny Campbell, the reason I'd never heard of her is because she is fictional. She was the heroine of a like runaway best-selling novel in the early part of the 19th century. She herself takes, she, she is like, it's set in the 18th century, as so many great pirate fiction is, but it was a bestseller in the 19th century. But it was such a widely read bestseller, and her image was so widely disseminated, especially in Scrimshaw, weirdly, which is, of course, a maritime artwork, um, that there were people who thought that she had been a real pirate. And so I enjoyed this kind of open question of... Um, of authorship and authenticity, especially as it pertains to women disguised as men and pirates. Mm-hmm. And who did you enjoy writing better, Hannah or Marion? I know it might be a tough question. It could have changed, but. <laughs> um, I mean, Marion is a little bit of a pill. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not her fault. It's not her fault. Like I have tremendous sympathy for Marion, but like, like she's not, she's not so great to hang out with, at least for a good part of the, of the book. You know, she like part of her journey is coming into a kind of more fully realized version of herself and stepping out from like under the shadow of her father. She has this very like influential charismatic dad. And so, I mean, Hannah was definitely more fun because Hannah has all, I mean, there's some action in Marion's storyline as well, but, um, but you know, Hannah, arms herself with a rigging knife and stabs a guy in the face and like, you know, lots of other exciting things that are worthy of trigger warnings and Goodreads reviews. Um, but also I liked, I liked thinking about Hannah's kind of having to be on her toes. You know, she, she has to like make sure that she understands what's happening and she's completely naive going into this situation and quickly learns, you know, which way is up. And so I think, I think writing Hannah was a little more fun, but also more challenging because mm. You know, I wanted to be authentic to her mindset and her frame of references and, and things like that. And like, I don't habitually pepper my everyday discourse with random biblical references, but <laughs> Hannah does. And so, you know, it's, it's 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 acquiring a different kind of voice writing someone who's that far in the past. Mm. So one thing we always love to ask is when somebody has sat down and they've finished reading this book and their friends reading it or their book clubs reading it, what types of conversations do you want to be had around these characters, around how they needed to present themselves in society and about their identities? Well, there is a discussion group guide available on the Macmillan website. So if anyone does want to read a true account with their book club, um, we do have a discussion guide that is that is available. Um, the other thing is that with all of my fiction, I always have an author's note at the end, which talks a little bit about the historiography or about like, where did the idea for this book come from? And what did I change? And what did I not change? And why did I do that? Um, but I think more than anything else, one of the things I find most interesting to think about is how I think we have this assumption that that 
people are the same regardless of when they are alive. We have this like trans historical construct of, of self. And in, in my understanding, like that's not actually accurate, you know? And so I think it's interesting. Fiction in general exists to create opportunities for radical empathy. And I think that empathy gets even more radical when you're thinking about someone whose sense of themselves, their very sense of selfhood has been constituted in this radically different period of time. It's the challenge in writing this kind of fiction. And I think it's kind of the challenge in reading it and relating to it as well. So that's something that I would think about. Is there a woman you found in your research that you would recommend we cover on our podcast? Someone who you just found so interesting you wish people knew more about? Um, well, I actually did. The reason that Hannah Missouri has the name Hannah Missouri is because there was a real Hannah Missouri. And Ooh. I found out about her totally at random as a fluke. And that was that a few years ago, my parents did the great winnowing down and shipped me all of their stuff. I don't know if this has happened to you yet or if it's going to happen to you, but it has happened to me. And I was going through the stuff. And one of the things that I found was a punch bowl from the 19th century that had a square rigged ship painted on it. I was like, this is beautiful. And I love punch. This is amazing. <laughs> I didn't know what the story was behind the punch bowl. So I did a little research and I figured out that it was a clipper ship called the Ellen Southard. And it had left Massachusetts. This was at the end of the age of sail. So we're 100 years later. This is in the 1860s. And so this clipper ship left Massachusetts with a load of locomotives bound for California. And it took, and the captain of the ship took his wife with him. And his wife was Hannah Augusta, Missouri. And so it took them 207 days to get from Massachusetts all the way around the Horn, all the way back up to California. And of that 207 days, 50 of them were spent just trying to go around the Horn. So here's this woman. She's 33 years old. She's married. She is riding a big honking clipper ship full of full of brains around the horn through like really tough sailing in the, in like the roaring forays. This is exciting by itself. But then I discovered it got a little more exciting because as their voyage continued on their route from Hong Kong back to California, her husband died. And then the passengers and the crew started to mutiny and Hannah had to hold off the mutiny with a pistol and uh, try to signal for help and was sort of adrift off the coast of San Francisco and then was finally rescued kind of in the nick of time off the coast of Santa Cruz. And I read this and stumbled upon this story and was like, that's crazy. And then she sued for her husband's percentage of the boat, of the ship, went back to Beverly, Massachusetts, bought a modest house, remarried a dentist and died in 1910. And I just loved thinking about, and her, her story completely disappeared. Like it was briefly kind of covered in certain sources at that time. And I'd seen a reference to her by her married name, which was Howe, by a remarkable coincidence, to <laughs> Miss Howe, um, in like a history that I'd read of women in the in like the age of sail about captains' wives and stuff. But those historians had not figured out what her first name was, like where she'd come from, what happened to her afterwards. And it just blew my mind. And I particularly liked thinking about like imagining her in 1909 when she's like 74 years old, like this little old Yankee, like tough Yankee lady walking down the street and passing her in the street and being like, you've been around the horn and you put down a mutiny with a handgun? Are you crazy? And I thought that was just so amazing that I had to use her name for my pirate 
<laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> great. I love her. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon slash evening. We're so excited to talk to you about your book. Can you tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find the other things that you've written and how they can follow you on your socials? Absolutely. My website is katherinehow.com and you can learn about all the books I've written, which it's actually kind of a lot now. Like I've reached the point where it's hard for me to remember all of them. The Penguin Book of Pirates is going to be my 10th book, which is crazy. Wow. Um, but they're all on the website. You can also keep up with me on Facebook, uh, where I'm Catherine Howe. On Instagram, I'm at Catherine B. Howe. Uh, I'm still on Twitter, technically, where I'm at Catherine B. Howe. And uh, I'm on Goodreads, obviously. And where else? Everywhere but TikTok, basically. I, I can't <laughs> cope. I cannot cope with TikTok. I'm too Gen X for TikTok. I won't do it. I'm not there, Um, but pretty much much everywhere else. I'm even on Pinterest. I actually use Pinterest to keep track of like sort of brainstorming and, 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 you know, bookmarking stuff that I'm researching. So if you want to spy on me while I'm working, you can sometimes do that while on, while on Pinterest. Um, And yeah. And the next thing that I have coming out is, as I said, the Penguin Book of Pirates, which will be released in on April 30th in the U S and the UK. And uh, yeah. That's, that's my story. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) Perfect. Well, thank you so much again for coming on and we can't wait to see what your 11th book is. (laughs) Oh, thanks y'all. I really appreciate you having me on. Oh, it's been a blast. You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.